Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, the Arcane Library has a new bundle of holding. The Level Up Advanced 5e system reference documents have been fully released under three different game licenses. We're going to do a deep dive spotlight of the Planescape box set, the Planescape slipcase box set. It's in a box, but I get yelled at if I call it a box versus a slipcase. It's a slipcase. We're going to talk about Planescape. And we're going to talk a little bit about the mortuary, this accessory that came out for Planescape, what that, what, how that fits in. I'm going to do a spotlight of two different Patreon products that are available to patrons right now. A brand new 5e Lazy GM screen printout inserts for your Lazy GM screen or for your table. And a Forge of Foes Monster Stats app, an app that you can put on your phone. It's a web page, but you can put it on your phone and you can generate stats for any monster of any challenge rating with a single click. And our big topic today is going to be looking at the music that we pick as a sort of backdrop for the game that we run. And we're going to have more questions from the 2023, and we're going to have more questions from the October 2023 Patreon Q&A, all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in tabletop role-playing games. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive tools, adventures, source books, tips for running your games, a dedicated Discord server, a monthly Q&A, and a whole lot more. It's a really good deal to sign up. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your outstanding support. Arcane Library is big in my head these days because I'm playing a lot of Shattered Arc a lot of the Shattered Ark role-playing game. My Sunday game is Shattered Ark role-playing. I just did a Shattered Ark Ravenloft game for my yearly Halloween Ravenloft game. That went really well. You will see a video or hear a podcast about that very shortly later this week. And... Yeah, and Arcane Library is fantastic. So Arcane Library also has a whole bunch of different 5th edition adventures written by Kelsey Dion in very quick, abbreviated style. I have done a spotlight of the Arcane Library adventures before. You can find that spotlight. I will put a link in the show notes. But there is a bundle of holding going on where you can get 8 5th edition horror-themed adventures plus some other stuff, including a 5e SRD combat cards, Fire of Isk, which I don't know what that is, and the Shadow Dark RPG Quick Start Guide, all together for $10. 10 bucks, eight adventures, plus other stuff. The Shadow RPG Quick Start Rules is nice to have it in there, but that's free and available on drive through anyway. So yeah, it's kind of a throw-in more than like a, a, a good value. It's a good value on its own, but it's good for free anyway. 10 bucks, it's a steal. If you want to check out these adventures, uh, pick this up on the uh, bundle holding. It's a great way to see the kind of adventures Kelsey writes uh, in the art that are published on the Arcane Library. They're built to be easy to run, easy to reference. Uh, they're, 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 they're brief. They focus on exactly what you need. They have a very particular style to them. Really interesting way that they're written. So I would definitely check out this, uh, this bundle. Uh, by the time you're seeing this show, you want to get on it. If you're seeing this later in the week, it might be too late, but you still want to check out the work of Arcane Library. Level Up Advanced 5e is one of the more interesting 5th edition books that I have been looking at and spending a lot of my time thinking about as a variant of 5th edition that sits side by side with the 2014 D&D books. In particular, I love the Monstrous Menagerie. I have talked about the Level Up Advanced the Level Up Advanced 5e Monstrous Menagerie a lot. It was my favorite book of 2022. The design is excellent. It's a perfect drop-in replacement for the Monster Manual, and it's just a fantastic book. One of the things that Morris, Morris from N-World is the publisher of Level Up Advanced 5e, and he was a big proponent in making sure that, that Level Up Advanced 5e was available under multiple licenses. During the OGL fiasco at the beginning of the year, it was already available under the OGL, but when the OGL was at risk, Morris immediately began work, hired a team to go through all of Level Up Advanced 5e's rule set, make sure that anything that could be a copyright issue was removed. He worked with uh, his lawyers to make sure that the way they were doing it is such that it would be able to stand on its own and then uh, release it under multiple licenses. And uh, he has just finished him and that, that team, Paul Hughes, I think, led the team, but a number of people that are on the team released all three core system reference documents for level up advanced 5e under multiple licenses so this includes the adventurer's guide trials and treasure and the monstrous menagerie it's 1200 pages of material 
It is something like three to four times bigger than the 5.1 SRD. So it is a huge amount. It's got classes. It's got subclasses. It's got feats. It's got all kinds of stuff that the core 5.1 SRD does not have. It's got a much bigger expanded section of monsters than the than the 5.1 SRD has. And it's all available, magic items and everything else, how they design encounters, all, all the different stuff that you can find in those books have all been put out under these multiple licenses. And those licenses are the Creative Commons, a CC attribution license, which means you are free to use this material in commercial products as long as you attribute it back to N-World Publishing and Level Up Advanced 5e. It's also still available under the OGL because it turned out nothing actually happened with the OGL. I seriously doubt anything will happen with the OGL. And it's released under the ORC license. I talked about the ORC license last, uh, last couple of times because Black Flag the system reference document that Cobalt Press is doing for 5th edition is being released under ORC. So Morris decided to release it under all of them. Now, in a couple of different places, I have seen people who are confused by the fact that there are multiple licenses who say, because it's under one license, does that mean it's a problem with the other license? Or there, is there some lack of compatibility? If you recall, I talked about how one of the issues with the ORC license is that the ORC license, you could not take material from an ORC license document and release it under any other license other than ORC. And they said, well, because of that, doesn't, doesn't that mean you can't do that with this? The answer is no. The answer is because this, this is not released under three licenses altogether, it's released under three separate licenses individually, which means you pick which one of those three licenses you want to use when you reference this material. The big question to me is why bother doing ORC if you're also releasing it under Creative Commons? Because a Creative Commons license is much less restrictive than ORC is. I asked Morris this and he said, why not? All right, fair, right? You've got if ORC. If for somebody who really wants to support the ORC license, if they feel very strongly about supporting the ORC license, you can use the ORC license. If you don't feel that strongly about using the ORC license, you can use the Creative Commons one. If you are mixing it with other OGL material, you can use the OGL license. So that would one reason why you might want to use the OGL license or maybe the ORC license maybe, I think, is if you are using a mixture of material that uses those other licenses, then you, could, then you might want to do it. Although I think you can use a Creative Commons license in OGL material and in ORC material. I think, I think you still can because the Creative Commons license doesn't preclude you using other licenses. So the fact that it's out of these other licenses is amazing, incredible value. And it's 1,200 pages. Again, way bigger than the 5.1 SRD. This is a fantastic reference that people can use to build products of their own in all sorts of different ways. So really excited about that. And I think it's a, it shows how much Morris and N-World Publishing and the people that are publishing there care about the hobby overall, more so than just making sure that they have a way to make a dollar. They, of course, are working to make sure they have a dollar, but they're also taking a lot of that material and releasing so other publishers can take it and expand off of it rather than just silo it down and say, no, you have to use your own stuff. Really, really good deal. Thanks to Morris and N-World for making that available. It's fantastic. Let's talk about Planescape. So last week, the Planescape box set, the Planescape slipcase product came out. I went down to my local game shop. I dropped down my $85 plus tax to get my copy. I did not get a promotion copy. This is my own paid for copy. And with the three slipcases, three slipcase books and the DM screen. I bought it because I'm a big fan of Planescape and I, and I was eager to see this product. I also bought it because I wanted to do a deep dive so I can tell you more about it. So my first disclaimer is no, this is not a paid endorsement. However, I do get the D&D Beyond version of it available to me for free because I am considered a D&D Beyond insider for some work that I did for them many years ago. I can't even fit the thing on my table. It's so big. So keep that in mind. But I did pay my own money for the actual book itself. So the number one question I think people might ask is, is it worth it? Here's my answer. If you are asking the question whether it's worth it, it probably isn't. If you, on the other hand, if it's a foregone conclusion that you're going to buy it because you're excited about it and you know it's expensive, but you want to buy it anyway, then it doesn't matter whether I tell you it's worth it or not because you're going to buy it. I bought it. And do I regret buying it? Not really. Do I regret the only I would re, may regret buying it, except that I got the special edition cover <laughs> and I know it's limited edition. I know there won't be a lot of these. So I'm happy to get the limited edition cover. If I had known what I know now and the only version of it was the non-special edition cover, I might wait 
until it was cheaper because you are paying for a whole lot of cardboard. When you buy this book, it's 85 bucks. It's the most expensive book-like product Wizards has put out that I know of. I think maybe the Ravenloft book was bigger, but $85 is expensive. That's, that's a lot, right? These books were $50 before and they're $85 now. But, but, but on top of that, look at, when you look at the side, if you were to take a saw and cut it in half and look at it, I think about half of this width here, that this is cardboard, not paper, not products. First of all, you have the box set itself, right? Which is two big sheets of cardboard in the front and back. You have the DM screen. That's four sheets of cardboard. You have three books, each with two, a front and back cover. That's six more. That's 12 big pieces of cardboard in this book. That's a lot. In, and that's where your money is going for a lot of that. Also, the paper, the page thickness is really high. The pages are really thick pages. And that's because there's so few pages in these books that it's going to feel like Babar if they weren't really, they'd be really, really thin if they use their normal page, page thickness, which means the amount of that you're paying for fiber is really high for that 85 bucks. And that I know like, Mike, what are you talking about? The amount of fiber that people are paying for. But that's a lot because what we're really talking about is how much like table usable material am I getting for the dollar? And the answer is a lot less than I used to get, <laughs> right? That's that's my kind of big issue. So if you compare this to probably my favorite source book, maybe my favorite source book of all time, the Eberron Rising from the Last War source book. If you don't have the Eberron Rising from the Last War source book, this one you definitely want to get. This book is outstanding. It's an amazing book and amazing value. It is a $50 book. I think you can get it. You can certainly get it cheaper than that. This is the special edition cover. Of course, I don't think you're getting this for 50 bucks, but $50. But the thing to keep in mind with this is the amount of material. This is a 320 page book. And the font size of this book packs a lot more words per page than they are in current. Ooh, my map is falling out. Then, then you get in a current book. When you think about the amount of material you get in Planescape compared to the amount that we got with Eberron, I, I think I'm being generous if I say that you're getting half of the material. And that's just pure word count. I think that the word count of this compared to the word count of Eberron is probably half and it costs $35 more right? That, that's, that's when I'm talking about value. But even modern products, more modern, because Eberron came out a few years ago. Life has changed, of course. Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft is not that old. And Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft has more material in it than this does as well. Font size is the same. You know, font size is now the same larger font size. So you'd be getting fewer words than Van Richten's Guide. But I feel like Van Richten's Guide, which was available for $12 on Amazon last week, 12 bucks. I bought two copies. I don't even need it, but I bought two copies because it was so good. Tremendous value. Other books that are more source book focus book, Eberron Rising from the Last War, which you can get for 33 bucks on Amazon. $33 for Eberron Rising the Last War. If you don't have Eberron Rising the Last War, get, go go pick that up. That is a really good value. Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. It was a fantastic, my favorite book that Wizards of the Coast put out in like the last three years. Really, really love that book. It was $12. I think it went up to 16 I don't even know what it's at right now. You'll have to go look. But it was dirt cheap on Amazon and, and, and a really good book. The Spelljammer box set was 38. So one question is says, okay, Mike, you're, you're complaining about the fact that you bought a big box full of cardboard and it cost you $85. What would be the right price? Well, Amazon has this already marked down to $51 the last time I checked. And I think it's you know, $59, $51. $51 is not bad. I, but like 45 would be good. And certainly if it was down to like $38 that Spelljammer is, then it's definitely a good, a good deal. Okay. So that's value. Is it worth it? When we talk about worth, we talk about the amount of material you're getting for the amount of money you're paying. And the answer is this is an expensive product. You're paying a lot of money, especially if you're paying the full retail price, you're paying for a lot of money. But what about the material? What about the quality of the material? Okay, stop talking about cardboard, Mike. What about the what about the what about the material that's actually in there? It's better than Spelljammer, and it's better than Spelljammer for one big reason, which is it actually has a campaign source book. That Spelljammer did not have a campaign source book. Spelljammer had a player's guide, a monster book, and an adventure. It did not have campaign information. It had a tiny little gazetteer about one particular place in Spelljammer. Nothing about how to run Spelljammer campaigns. Nothing about different adventures you can run on. No adventure hooks. Nothing like that. Planescape definitely does. One of the one of the three books is a 96-page campaign book called 
Sigil and the Outland. Sigil? 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 I heard Sean and Teos arguing about whether it's Sigil or Sigil. We're gonna, we'll call it Sigil. Why don't we call it Sigil? Sigil and the Outlands is a 96-page source book. But also, there's a, actually hidden little bits of source booky stuff in the Mort's Planier Parade. So there's actually a few extra pages in there from Mort's Planier Parade that are kind of source book-like, about like what kind of monsters you're going to bring in. So there's actually... There's actual, honest to God, sourcebook material. And the sourcebook material that's in here is really, really good. It would help you run Sigil. It would help you run Adventures in the Outland. It gives you lots of hooks, lots of flavor about what to make this place like. That part of it is really, really fantastic. So there is a sourcebook. That means that this has better shelf life. Again, talking about that value. To me, a valuable product is one that I can put on my shelf, I can pull down, and I can use repeatedly year after year, maybe for the rest of my life. That Eberron book, I'm going to be able to use that the rest of my life. Uh, Spelljammer? Probably not. I ran the adventure. I'm kind of done with it. So I want that. I want that value. So about 95 pages out of the 256 pages is campaign material. There's character option material, but it's not a lot. It's like maybe 10 pages. The monster book has about 10 pages of actual setting material that's hidden away. So there's a, a decent amount of campaign material. Of course, I want more. I would have preferred it to be about twice the amount of campaign material, at least 50% more campaign material than it had. The kind of product I really wanted, again, yeah, Eberron Rising from the Last War, I like products that are mostly campaign material with an introduction adventure that helps show me what it would be like to run an adventure in this campaign. An adventure that I could run for my friends, or one I could even just read that shows me about why this campaign setting is different from all the other campaign settings. What I don't really need is something like what they did with Dragonlance, what they did with Spelljammer, which is instead of giving us campaign information, they gave us a big adventure that you could run that kind of captures that. But if you want to run that, you got to, you know, you get a modifier for yourself and maybe give you the, the theme and the flavor. I don't need more big campaign adventures like that. And particularly when it's something like Dragonlance or Planescape or Spelljammer, those are worlds are so different. I need a lot of material to tell me about the world so I can build my own adventures in them. That's what I'm really looking for. And that's why I've been disappointed by those books. I didn't even bother to review the Dragonlance books because A, I didn't run it. I wasn't planning on running it. And it didn't really have anything in there that excited me about running Dragonlance adventures. So we're making my own Dragonlance adventures. This one at least is like halfway there. We definitely get a lot of book as the adventure. I'm going to talk all about the adventure. So talking about the setting book, the setting book is excellent. There are seven pages of character focused material with just a couple with a couple of nice juicy backgrounds. I think that having backgrounds in a book like this is really good. Backgrounds are a great way to connect the characters to the world. I love using backgrounds. I don't really need more subclasses. And frankly, the design of subclasses is sort of all over the place anyway. So when you fill up a book with a lot of subclasses, I also wonder like, am I even going to use those later or not? I don't really need subclasses. Backgrounds, however, it's hard to screw up a background. You, you don't really, you don't really make backgrounds unbalanced. And those backgrounds are a great way to uniquely identify characters in the campaign world. So I really like having backgrounds. Don't really need much other stuff. There's some unique feats that are tied to backgrounds because now backgrounds have feats. I guess we've all decided that that's going to be the new way is that backgrounds now have feats. So there's a bunch of feats in there that are specific to backgrounds. You have 45 pages about Sigil itself, the wards, its factions. There's a page and a half on running adventures. I, I would have definitely liked more of that. I think having like a couple of pages of like campaigns you could run, that's something I feel like Van Richten's guide had. I think Van Richten's guide had like how you could run campaigns in these settings that I don't feel like I'm getting here. I, I did see that in like Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons and Big B's Big Book of Big Boys was that they had how to run campaigns using this. It doesn't take a ton of words, but the idea of help, help me out, right? Help me run campaigns here. I could have used more material like that. There's encounter lists. There's a few different places where they have encounter lists that are useful. Encounter lists are really good. Tailored encounter lists that are built for the setting, really, really handy. However, unfortunately, it looks like they ran out of space with some of them. So instead of having descriptions like certain monsters and certain contexts that you would find them under, it just says 1D4 quadrones or 1D4 green slots. Other ones have descriptions in them that talk about what the context is of an encounter that you might run into, but then a bunch of them don't have any text description at all. I really think that the best model for this is the Waterdeep City Encounters book, which uh, was put up together by Will Doyle over on the DMs Guild, shows you what a great random table has that has particular encounters with context. What is the condition under which you found these creatures? You know, and it could be like, imagine 1d4 green slots are arguing with 1d4 quadrones about logic. That would be some context it gives you a scene. It's it doesn't. It's not paragraphs of text. It's one line, but it gives you just enough to go. Ah, this is why this encounter is different than any other encounter. That example being a really fun one, right? That the green slots who are very chaotic are arguing with quadrones over a dice game, right? Would be very fun. Just give me that little bit of context. 
There are 16 outland gate, gate towns that take up 36 pages in the book. Each of them are sort of a two-page spread, beautiful artwork. By the way, the construction of this book is gorgeous. The art is fantastic. The physical design is amazing. I said you're paying 85 bucks for a big box of cardboard. It's beautiful cardboard, right? The covers are gorgeous. The, the physical construct is great. The DM screen looks really cool. It is really, really good-looking set. The question is, is that where you want your value to be? I definitely want the good artwork. Like, you know, the art is fantastic. It's really, really good. And the art for the Outlands really shows you what these places are like, really builds in that atmosphere. It's a great way to very quickly digest what makes each of these Outland, these 16 Outland gate towns different. They each have their two-page spread. They have a, a common format. They do have adventure hooks with each of the Outlands that kind of show you what they're like. I really wanted more adventure hooks. I wanted more adventure hooks. I wanted hooks everywhere. It's, you know, I, I really wish that they could have more options to tell you as a GM, here's the kind of adventures you could run in this specific spot. They're, they're kind of buried away. They're in kind of different places. And it feels like they just ran out of room to talk about this stuff. I love this book. I wish it was twice the size or at least 150% of the size. I definitely want it bigger. All right. Now the adventure. The adventure's name is... Turn of Fortune's Wheel is the name of the adventure. I am going to spoil the adventure. If you do not want to have the adventure spoiled, please skip ahead and avoid this section because I don't want to spoil it for you. Honestly, I'm not a fan of what I read and I don't plan on running it and I haven't run it myself, so I don't know exactly how good or bad it is. I really feel like you can't know how good an adventure is until you've run it. But there are certain things that I look at with an adventure and they jump out at me as like, oh, that's going to be a pain or I'm definitely going to want to do it differently. And I'll tell you what my, my big issues with the adventure are. And then I'll tell you what I liked about the adventure. So it's not all, it's not all bad. But I want to I want to talk about the, 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 the stuff that, that made me come to this conclusion that I really, A, I wish you'd just done another 96 pages of the source book or do 64 pages of the source book and a 32 page, um, a 32 page small adventure, right? Small miniature campaign would have been, I think what I would have wanted, but what it could have, should have, it is what it is. The main quest giver is also the bad guy. The main quest giver who you meet pretty early on in chapter two, turns out they're the one that has been screwing you all along, right? Oh man. No, that's, that's not a good trope. That's one of those like, oh, it's, you know, who would have thought? And you're watching like a mystery movie. The problem is what if they figure it out, right? Or what if they're really pissed off at the end? Or what if they're just like, you know, I don't want to deal with this guy at all. That there's so many potential problems with that. A far more interesting, if you want to have sort of a protagonist, antagonist, NPC quest giver is making them like Al Swearingen. When you know they're a bad guy, you know that they're up to no good. You even know the things that they did, but you have to work with them anyway. But if you go to your quest giver and like, oh yeah, I've murdered you a bunch of times. By the way, the quest I'm sending you on is really just for you to be murdered again. What a waste of time, right? Like, and the problem with it is it's one thing when you have something like this. It's also something else when it feels like it's going to take a lot of work to kind of rip that part of it out and replace it with something that, that works. I don't see an easy way to replace that. That a lot of the way that this adventure is supposed to go requires the fact that the players don't know that the person they're doing this job for is also has murdered them a bunch of times. I, I'm not I'm not crazy about that idea. And I think it's a hard one to fix. That's probably the first one right off the bat. It's like, you know what? I'll, I'll run something else. The initial premise is interesting. And if you sell it to your players, your players are like, yeah, I could buy into that. But it also has a little bit of the Spelljammer problem, which is about backgrounds. I'll get into that in a second. But again, full spoiler. I've already spoiled the main part of the adventure. The second part of this adventure is that you are one version of your character. There are many versions across the multiverse. There's a big glitch going on. And when your character dies, a new one could jump in, which means you start with no memories of how you are. In fact, you start off with the exact scenario of Planescape Torment. And it's like, I played Planescape Torment. My players, some of them have played Planescape Torment. I don't think you're going to get a lot of people going, oh, cool. This is exactly like what happened in Planescape Torment. Instead, you're going to be like, seriously? It's the same scene from Planescape. Hell, Mord is there calling me buddy or whatever, chief, right? So I've got the same NPC that I played in Planescape Torment. I'm sure somebody had this idea that wouldn't it be great if we could tie into Planescape Torment and capture that sort of memory of people playing it. I feel like starting off your adventure with the exact same scenario that started off, I think you're going to get groans more than you're going to get feelings of nostalgia for the most part. The other one is how do you have character? And who wants to play a character where you don't know anything about their background? In, in a fifth edition game. Everybody wants to have a backstory. Some people love huge backstories. Some people just want a little bit of backstory. Having no backstory means you don't know your character and you're not going to know your character 
long into it. You're only playing in the scenes that are there. You have no idea how you got there or what your motivation is. Maybe you didn't want to do this at all. So having a whole group of characters that have amnesia, and you, I think they keep that amnesia till like the very end. That doesn't work. But then also you have backgrounds. How do you have a background if you don't know who you are? How do you know you were a sage? How do you have sage-like experiences? If you don't know your sage, the only reason you have backgrounds in this is because they have feats because we decided that feats are part of backgrounds. I find that hard. It was the same problem I have with Spelljammer where Spelljammer is like, well, you're a bunch of characters that don't know that there's Spelljammers. By the way, in our book, we have a bunch of races that you can be that are Spelljammer races. How can you be the Spelljammer races and not know anything about Spelljammer? It was like one half of the product didn't know what the other half of the product was doing. It's a little bit like that where you have these new backgrounds that are focused on your job and your role in Sigil. And you're not going to remember that you did it. You know, again, maybe other people have figured it out. It didn't seem it didn't seem to work for me. Holy cow, there's a lot of casino games. If you have players or you are a DM who loves running casino games, this is your book because there's lots and lots of them. There are pages of casino games in here. There's a whole scene in a casino where you're playing a bunch of games and then you go and you do a bunch of stuff. And you come back and there's more casino games. I don't like casino games. I want to, I want adventure. But, you know, some people, they dig their casino games. What's worse is you might have some players who really like the casino games and then other ones who don't. I played in an adventure where we were like on a train. It was an Eberron adventure. And you're on a train and there's a bunch of casino games. And half the players are having a great time and half of them are on their phone. Because some people like casino games and some people don't. I did not like casino games. I was, I was bored. Also, I was terrible at them. Um, there are a lot of quests where you have to prove yourself to a particular group. Oh, you want to do this thing? We could totally let you do it right now. But instead, we need you to go hunt this monster or engage in these feats of strength or do this other stuff. I always feel like those feel like a waste of time too. You're not actually progressing the story. You're not doing anything that matters. Instead, you're just proving yourself to somebody so they give it to you. Felt like there were a few of those in here. I could be I could be overweighting those. So one of the big pieces of the adventure focuses on restoring memories to this metal skull called a, mem- a, mem- a memir, memir, memir. And it, it wasn't clear to me exactly how you're supposed to get these memories back. It's something about going to the gate, but it feels like, can't you just go to the gate and get it? If you just need the memory, just can you go there? Why get involved in the quests that are going on in the Outlands? There's a big jump from 10th to 17th level where suddenly you find your true self. This is sort of a big selling point. Oh, like it's going to be, you know, third to 10th level. And then suddenly you're 17th level. That's because you find out who you truly were. I wonder how they killed you. Because how do you kill 17th level characters? The adventurer says, oh, you can run your own adventures in here if you want to. And you're like, yeah, you know what else I can do? Not pay you $85. Why are you telling me about what adventures I can run? I know what adventures I can run. Don't tell me, hey, you could fill in this spectrum. No, that's why I paid you 85 bucks. I paid you 85 bucks so you would give me adventures that I could run. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't need you to tell me I can run adventures. I've been doing that for 50 years. Not 50 years. I've been doing 30 years. I had a very unfortunate conversation with somebody from Wizards at one point on Twitter where they had spoiled the ending to one of the campaigns and my wife saw the spoiler and I was really mad. They had done it in a live play game. In the live play game, they spoiled an adventure that I had just paid money to play and run for my group. And my players watched the live show game and they got the ending. And I was mad. And I said, why did you spoil the ending to this adventure you just released? And their response back to me was, well, you can always change the ending. And I was like, you know what else I could do? Not pay you any more money. Right. Because that was that was I was angry. If they grab. So one thing I want to be very clear about all of this. Right. Is I don't want to yuck your yum. I don't want you to go, man, I really like this. And then I heard Mike talk about it. and I don't like it anymore. If you dig it, you dig it. And I really want you to dig it. I want to dig it. These are just things that I didn't dig it. And I think when people are spending the kind of money that we're talking about for this, it's worth understanding where you got to go. So the main things that I feel like I would have, you know, when I look at an adventure and what helps me determine whether I want to run an adventure or not is how much work is it going to be for me to modify it? I don't mind modifying an adventure. I love, I always modify my adventures. Are you making me do a lot of work to do it? Or is it something I can pretty easily do? Or now I can better yet is our adventures that I can modify just because I feel like it. While Beyond the Witchlight, I loved it, right? I felt like I got to modify it in ways that fit our group, but overall, I really enjoyed the adventure. Uh, Tomb of Annihilation, loved it. Felt like I only had to modify... That one, I definitely felt like I had to modify parts, but I didn't feel it was hard. Other adventures, I felt like I had to modify way more than I should have given the amount of money that I paid. Because then, we're paying real money for this stuff. I feel like Shamika, who is the main villain that turns out she's the main bad guy, figuring out how to make her not a secret enemy, I don't know how the hell I was going to do that. Replacing the Prove Yourself quests, adding in clear ways to add the memory, those would be things that I have to figure out. So what I, did, what I did like about it, A, it includes the Modron March, which is really cool. People have been looking for the Modron March. It's built in here. I thought that was really neat. It takes adventures all through Sigil and the Outlands. So you really get to see the breadth of this adventure. That's one thing from the adventure that I think is really, really good, is it shows you the whole area. It's really 
focuses on it. This is going to be a unique adventure for Sigil in the Outlands. If you like the premise, if you can get by some of the other issues and you like the premise of it and your players like the premise of it, it's going to be a great way to explore it. You could probably also take those middle adventures that are taking place in the Outlands. You could probably pull those out and run those independently. I don't think you actually need those middle Outland adventures to run as part of it because, again, they each have their own quests that they're following. So you could kind of run those as you as you want. The writing is really solid and direct. It really is clear about what you're doing and where you're going. Spelljammer was the same way. The Spelljammer adventure, which I liked, I liked it better than I read this one. I, you know, again, I haven't run both, but I like the Spelljammer adventure a fair amount. There were still problems with that. Again, had hey, that person you've been working with is also the main bad guy, but it was easily to, that was easily changed. Like that one, I just had to change one little thing at the end, and it was it was far better. That this one, I feel like you're gonna have to rip out this heart that's got veins all through it, and you have to pull it all out and replace it with something else and get it all veined back in. It's gonna be really hard. Now the monster book. The monster book, again, I look at it and the monsters in the book just hit for too little damage. We talked about this all the time. And for me, the big issue with this is it is a bad indicator for me about what I worry about with the 2024 monster manual. I don't feel like Wizards of the Coast has learned a lesson that I feel like I've learned and a lesson that I've got from a lot of feedback from other people. And I've yet to really find people. I've definitely had people argue with me about this and people on my Discord server, we argue about this. I haven't had many people tell me, no, Mike, you're an idiot. They're doing plenty of damage. They are definitely a good threat for the kind of characters that would be facing them. I don't hear that a lot. Instead, what I, the, the argument I hear is, well, they match what the DMG said. The DMG is wrong. The DMG is overweighting defensive capabilities, which means the amount of damage that creatures are doing is too low. Almost all of the creatures that I that I look through in this book are hitting for too little damage. It was it was too low. There's actually one monster where I was like, wow, the monster, the amount of damage it's doing is way under. And I was looking at D&D Beyond version, which is error that has errors. It's missing. It's missing stuff from it. And that's why it was like one of the monsters, the CR-22 Planier Incarnate was doing 2.9 damage per CR when it should be 7 CR. But actually, apparently the, and I'm going to look at it right now, the one that's in the physical book, the, the one that's on d and Beyond is missing reactions that do extra damage. And apparently the physical book version, look at the covers, look at that, Githyanki, right? That's like the old Githyanki from the old one. Looks really good. But look, it's like Babar. Look at how thin that book is. Why, why? Cardboard. Give me a lot of cardboard. Really thick pages. The Planier Incarnate has three reactions it can take, including a Searing Gaze that does 16. In response to being hit by an attack roll, the Incarnate can turn a magical gaze towards one creature you can see with 120 feet. Target must succeed at DC 20 Wisdom saving throw. It takes 16 fire damage. So 16 times 3. Let's say it does that every time. is 48, right? So you have 48 plus, and how much other damage does it do? Two slam or energy bolt. We will go with the energy bolt attacks because they hit harder. So that's 64. So 48 plus 64 is 112. Its CR is 22. So 112 divided 22. So it's doing five damage per CR. I mean, that's low. Seven per CR is better. At higher CRs, I think it could go up to 10. The threat, you gave, you gave feats to first level characters now. They have a whole extra feat. All the subclasses. You gave them freaking silvery barbs. Their characters are way more powerful at higher CRs. The damage needs to be higher to threaten them. The good news is it's very easy to fix. You want to fix these monsters, all you do is give them another attack or two, right? Look at how many attacks they get. Give them another. Give them another. Give them two more attacks. Give this Planier Incarnate, you really want to make it hardcore? Give it four slam attacks and four energy bolts. Now it's doing the right amount of damage. So fixing these monsters to get them to do the amount of damage that, in my opinion, they ought to be doing is usually a matter of giving them one to two more attacks. So you're, But the problem is you got to do that and you got to know if you need to do it. You look at their monsters, you say, oh, and I got to figure out their damage per round. And I have to say, is that how is that compared to their challenge rating? And is that appropriate or not? And if not, I, I dive the damage up. Usually you have to do it. You have to make the damage higher. Again, why did I pay $85 to have to fix your monsters for you? Again, I mentioned that they snuck some setting material into this book. And the setting material is really cool. That in the beginning of the book, it's like 10 pages in the beginning and a few pages in the end where it offers up really cool stuff. Planar influences. How are monsters that live in these various outlands influenced by the outland that they have? And it's got these cool Forge of Foes-like abilities. I should bring this up on Dini Beyond. So you have different alignments that, that, that tie to the different planes. It's not really that useful, especially we're getting away from alignment. But then you have these, like the Abyss. If you're connected to the Abyss, you have this Entropy of the Abyss. Poison Tolerance. Siege, siege Monsters. Acheron's got these. So there are different planes have different powers that you can tie to existing monsters to modify them. Very Forge of Foes power-like. You know, the really neat stuff. And there's a whole bunch of those. So this is a great way. To, you have now taken all of your existing monsters and made them unique and special with just adding these little lines. That is really cool. I love more of these and fewer monsters, frankly. But, you know, I think, I think that that is an outstanding addition. And again, 
you know, stuck, kind of squirreled away in the monster book, making you think that the monster book is all just monsters. It turns out, no, it's actually got other things too. That's, that's really cool. You know, then you have these encounters, you know, denizens of the outlands. When you're in these outlands, there's these encounters. These are the kinds of encounters I was talking about where they have context. They tell you the beholder influenced by the abyss has compound eyes and looks like a floating cyclopean flyhead. It promises not to destroy the characters that they bring it a corpse that has never tasted before. That's cool, right? Those are like little tiny adventures, like little adventure encounters. I love those. That's great, right? This is really cool. And that means that this product is more valuable because you have stuff like that that you can use in all of your different campaigns. Here's a good example I was talking about before where it has like evil planar encounters. This is at the end of the book, I think. I think if you get the physical book, I think those random encounter tables are in the back. Yeah, so they're in the they're in the last couple of pages. It's only two two pages worth for these planar encounters. But you can see where I feel like they ran out of room because it says like 1d6 barrier wanderers, no context. One modrone that has gone rogue and seeks the meaning of the multiverse. Now we have context. 1d6 swarm of sunflies. Doing what? Why are they there? 1d4 red slotty. Doing what? One swarm of cranium rat squeakers. If the, number, if the number is even, the cranium rats have set up a tiny shop. If the number is odd, the cranium rats have also set up a tiny shop but are con artists. Freaking cool, right? All of these should have that. All of these should have, even, look, they did it with four words. So there's no reason they couldn't have fit this in. 1d4 mercy killer bloodhounds tracking a planar criminal. Context, right? So a lot of times they have conflicts, con context, but then other times you have 2d6 nightmares. Doing what? Grazing? What are they doing? Grazing on a lava field? Tell me why they're there. That's the advantage of having good contextually focused random encounter tables. The fact that they're there at all is excellent, though. I'm really happy they're there. I'm happy they, they managed to fit in more setting material than just the 96 pages that are in the setting book. And that's why I feel like, you know, is it a good deal? Do you, do you, should you buy it? Is it worth it? I don't think it's worth 85 bucks. $85 is a lot of money. You can do a lot with 85 bucks. You can buy two other, three other things. You can, you can, you could get a lot of stuff. But if it's down to 40, $45. Now you're talking. Now it's a really good deal. And again, I saw it on Amazon for 51 bucks. $51 is pretty good. $51, you're getting a lot of material for 51 bucks. Probably the biggest thing on whether it's worth it or not is do after hearing all of this, after reading other reviews, and you should read other reviews if you're if you're thinking about it. You either just bought it, in which case, why even worry about it? Just enjoy what you got. But if you're reading the other things, the question is, are you going to run it? Are you going to run campaigns there? Are you going to run that adventure? Are you excited to use this stuff? If you're going to use it in your game, it's almost certainly worth it. It's then If you're going to run a campaign with this, $85 is pretty cheap for the material that you need to run a multi-week campaign with five, six people. That's really good. So it really depends on whether or not you're going to run it. If you're going to run it, it's probably worth it. If you're not going to run it, it probably isn't. If you can get it, again, to me, the sweet spot would be 40 bucks. Yes. $45. Yeah, yeah, probably. 50. Yeah, I don't know. That might be, you know, we got to question it. 85. 85 is really high. But apparently, that's not enough. $85 isn't enough because we also get the Mortuary. So the Mortuary is a day one download. It's not even downloadable content, right? <laughs> and it's not, it's not even DLC because DLC is downloadable content, right? And you can't download this. Instead, you can pay $10 to lease the Mortuary, which is a about a 9,000 word, which is about 10 to 12 pages of extra material focused on the Mortuary that is part of Planescape. I really feel like, and, and so, so, you know, we're all allowed to feel how we want to feel. And again, this isn't like a Wizards is ruined. I'm not, you know, oh, shock face. Wizards is ruining D&D or anything like that. No, because they're going to do what they want. They're going to sell whatever products they want. We can buy them or not. That's really, that's a question. Lots of other companies are putting out products that we can buy or not. So when we think about them as another fifth edition publisher and what they're putting out, but knowing what we heard about, hey, we need to find more ways to monetize D&D. We've seen these experiments where they're putting out like the monstrous compendium for fake creatures and they're charging money for that. And now we see the mortuary, which is like 12 pages of material that costs 10 extra dollars. The thing that kind of bugs me is you just sold me again, $85 box set. And now you're charging me another 10 bucks for this. It's not bad, right? It's got cool maps. It's got interesting stuff in here. You know, it's kind of expanded upon one of the factions. Hey, look, it's got random encounters and these all have context. I kind of wish the other one had context for every one of the encounters. So it's got a lot of decent stuff in here. 
but you know, you're charging me another $10 and you're doing it the same day. <laughs> like I just got it. Seriously. So I, I do feel, you know, I don't want to be like, oh, they're money grabbing, but you know, I don't know. It feels a little low rent to me. You know what would have been cool? Giving it away, right? I, I have a feeling you probably could have given it away and it wouldn't have been that much. And you could use it as a, as a marketing expense and you could put it out there and it gets people to subscribe to D&D Beyond and it gets you excited to see material that you might, might get more of by buying Planescape. You know, includes a stat block for things that are in here too. This one, oh, so they added the reactions, I guess. The Planar Incarnate version, it looks like it was updated and now has the reactions in there that includes the other damage. Remember I was talking about not having that. So I, if I was going to speak an entrapping question, my, in my, my entrapment question would be, is this cutting room floor material that you didn't put in the book because you didn't think it was worthy of the book? In which case, why are you charging me $10 for your cutting room floor material? Or is this material as solid as all of the stuff that's in the book? And if so, how come it isn't in the book instead of you charging me another $10 for it? So you don't get to win that answer. I think the reality is... The truth, the true answer is we're experimenting with different formats of products. We put out the box set because we know people like to buy big books and we want to sell big books that have all this stuff in it. So we're experimenting with the products. We're also experimenting by putting out a $10 pretty well produced. Like it costs them money. They've got five new maps in it. They've got all this other stuff in it and they're going to charge 10 bucks for it and see what happens. People buy it or they don't, right? And it's a cheap experiment for them because all it is is design time. It's design time and time to get it up onto the site. They don't have to publish a bunch of them. They're not going to have a bunch of stock and warehouses rotting away and getting eaten by by book lice. You know, they're they're testing things out. Okay, that's fine. And we don't have to buy it. We can buy it if we want or we don't have to buy it. Another interesting thing. Remember I talk about Mike's little candles. I have all these little candles that tell me like, is Watsy doing good for the RPG community? And they're like flickering candles in different signs. This one's flickering a little bit because you know where you can't get this? Foundry, Fantasy Grounds, Roll20. All of the other partners where they put this stuff, the Adventure Atlas, the Mortuary, as far as I know, is only available on D&D Beyond. You are not seeing this product on any other platform. You're not seeing a physical version. You're not seeing it on any other platform. So remember when I talked about like one of the signs that Wizards of the Coast is being more insular and not being as good a community player is when you're starting to see the material not released to other platforms. I doubt we're going to see this on Roll20. Now, of course, we do have Planescape Adventures in the Multiverse available on Roll20. So we're, we're getting that. But we're not going to get this like D&D Beyond exclusive thing. That's okay, right? I, I don't think it's like a flickering candle. It's in go out. Oh, it's the worst thing that you're not releasing. Cause you know, it's not that big a deal, right? If we don't have that on another platform, it's not the end of the world. But what if this was really good? What if this was like a new starter set adventure that brought players into the game? That was your drive to bring people to D and D and the only place to play it was on D and D beyond. What if they say this, this, you know, this would be a bad thing. And I don't think that they're doing this, but what if they say, hey, we're not going to put out a new physical starter set anymore. The world is digital now. We're going to put out a new digital starter set and it's going to be on D&D Beyond. That would be really bad. That would be the candle flickering out. That means they're no longer being good community players that are bringing people into the hobby. They are saying, we want subscribers to D&D Beyond. We don't want role-playing game players. We don't want people in the TTRPG community. We don't want to bring new players to TTRPGs and play. We want people to subscribe to D&D Beyond, right? And that would be a bad example. So don't do that. If you're from Wizards of the Coast, your core products... Frankly, all your products should be available on multiple platforms. Don't put everything on D&D Beyond. But boy, your core products better be on every platform or you're not being good community players. Thus ends my talk about Planescape. On the Sly Flourish Patreon, I offer tons of different stuff to help people run their, run their games. And this past week, I've been working on a couple of things. And one of them is a new, I, I have a 5e Lazy GM cheat sheet that's available on slyflourish.com for free. One of the things I was like, you know, I'd love to add some of the Forge of Foes stuff to it as well. I started working on Forge of Foes monster stat blocks that you could put in there. And then I was like, you know, there's some other things from the companion I'd like. So I put together a new 5e Lazy GM sheet PDF. You can print this out on paper. You can take these. There are GM screens that have your ability to slide in sheets of paper in them. You can even pick which sheets you want and use those. What, the way I like to use it is I have a big acrylic sheet on my table and I will slide these under my acrylic sheet so that I'm, while I'm sitting there looking at the players, I can look down at the reference material. So it is now, it used to be just one page. Now it is four pages of material. We have improvised statistics, DCs, a bunch of random names, which skills apply to which ability scores. The deadly encounter benchmark is on here. Number of creatures and areas of effect for things like theater of the mind how to run monster hordes, uh, abbreviated condition descriptions so you can read them all in one place. Then we have this sheet, 
which has a bunch of random tables for locations, monuments, items, conditions, descriptions, and origins. Those are the ones I find really useful stuff. NPC behaviors, enthusiastic you know, behaviors and ancestries. You can have a haughty tiefling, a shifty dwarf, a cheery talking animal, a greedy cat folk, whatever you want. Stress effects was the main reason I put in here because I started using stress effects a lot. If they're hit with like a fear or a stun, you can roll this and they're... There, they get a stress effect, some flavor to the stress effect that they get hit with. That's a kind of a fun way to add some story to it. We have those conditions, descriptions, then a 1D100 table for spells and a quick 1D table for 1D20 table for weather. So that's just one page that's got a bunch of like the most common random tables that I have in the DMs companion that I put on here. Then the Forge of Foes stuff, we have quick monster stats from CR1820. If you want to have a CR14, you look, you see ACDC is 14, 84 hit points, attacks plus six, two attacks, 14 damage. Bang, you're done. So you want to improvise a monster. You can improvise a monster very, very quickly with that table. Over here, you have the quick monster traits with some of my key traits that I have from, I think these are a mixture from Forge of Foes and from the Lazy DMs Companion. What are some common traits that you can associate with a monster that kind of change that monster up? Damage reflection, misty step, knockdown, restrained grab, damaging burst, cunning action, damaging aura, damage transference, or pack tactics. Good ways to add those in there. Again, that all comes from... And then the last page is a new abbreviated sheet that helps you keep track of the characters. Number one most important thing, focus on your characters. Who's the character? Who's the player? What's their race and class? What background do they have? Whoops. What trained skills do they have? And their passive insight, investigation, and perception. And six. I probably need to add more columns to this just in case you get more more players and more characters and anything like that you can just hand write it in so those that is a four page uh four panel printable gm screen the lazy gms reference screen i'm probably going to keep working on this but i wanted to put a version about that out there for patrons so that is available on your patron rewards page you can find that if you go to your patreon the slideflare's patreon rewards page there's one pinned post at the top that has all of the rewards and you can find this listed in there Another cool feature that I worked on is the Forge of Foes 5e Monster Stats app. It's really big because it's meant to be run on your phone. You can very, very quickly pick any CR. You want a CR 11, there's your stat block for a CR 11. You want a CR 26, bang, you have a CR 26. You just pick it, it tells you hit points, attack bonus, number of attacks, and the amount of damage. CR 26 is really, it's really hard. So this is a super handy way to just have a nice app that you can use to quickly gin up a stat block. It is intended to be used side by side with the lazy, the lazy GM's random generator. I thought about putting it as part of the generator, but it, they didn't fit quite right. So it kind of works better as a separate app. But with this generator, of course, you can go in, you can pick uh, items from particular settings, add spells. I added deep magic one and two spells and level up advanced 5e spells. And you can get like items like a frozen undead statue of Rangda, the demon lord of witches from the creature codex that can dominate beast and tells you what the spell is so ran this helps you generate monuments ancestral monuments monuments of power items npcs locations diablo style dungeons encounters quests, traps and magic items vault of magic items and magic treasure hordes per tier so if you want to have like a tier two treasure hoard you hit that you get the amount of money and you get any potential random random magic items that exist in there based on the dmg so this is also a mobile friendly app you can bookmark it on your phone you can you can hit it and then the forge of foes one you can now generate a monster between the two of those you can build all kinds of adventures and really help you get the material you need to improvise stuff at the table these are all available to these are all available to patrons of Sly Flourish. You can, you can find this right off of the Patreon page. The main topic I wanted to talk about today was how to add music to your games. When you can add music, what kind of music you need, what kind of playlists you want, and what are some good sources for the music that you add to your games. I love adding music to my games. I have a small Bluetooth speaker that's hidden away in my dining room. I can turn that onto my phone and I can play a playlist and just let the playlist play. Some people like to have soundboards with lots of different things, sound effects and weird eerie music and stuff like that. That can work pretty well. If, if you can keep trying of it i have a tendency like losing track of that tabletop audio is an excellent website that has like ambient music you can play in the background for different things that's really cool but what i keep finding myself going back to that i've been doing for like more than 10 years more than 15 years is having playlists of music that fit a particular theme that go for hours and i can just hit it and off it goes and it just adds some ambient music to the background 
The main thing that I do is I have three different playlists. I have a relaxing playlist, a suspenseful playlist, and a combat playlist. And all of those are about the theme and the tempo of the kind of music that I'm adding to it. Relaxing music is very low pace, low key, the kind of stuff you'd have when the characters are walking around town or when they're at a campsite and it's not particularly dangerous. Or they're just, you know, any anytime that the the or they're having conversations with NPCs. Anytime that their their lives aren't at risk, the threat isn't great. The relaxing playlist is there. I'll usually start with the relaxing playlist while the characters are getting ready, and then depending on what happens during the strong start, might switch to one of the other playlists. But those those playlists, those three playlists, have a lot of of variance to them, a lot of ability to use them in lots of different circumstances, which means you really only need those three. The suspenseful playlist is really meant when things are dangerous, but not in combat. So if you're exploring a deep dungeon, if you're out in the wilderness at night, if you're, you know, any kind of travel where there's a risk, if you're in a town, but you know, there are shady people in the shadows that are looking at you funny, then you use your suspenseful playlist again, low key, low tempo, but, but kind of got a sinister undertone to it. And, you know, so you want to find different music that does that. You don't want something that's hammering really fast. You want a low, low beat, but not quite as happy and serene as what you would put into the Raxing playlist. And then you have the combat playlist. And this is your hardcore music is hammering out high rhythm, energy, you know, things that you get. And the, the key is you definitely want to be switching those because if you have your high energy music going while you're in a relaxing scene, that throws the environment off. Likewise, if you have your relaxing music while you're doing combat, everybody's falling asleep. So you definitely want to be switching among these playlists while these different kind of scenes are going on. But I don't think we need more different variants than that. You could have like, oh, I have my wilderness versus my town and I have overland fights versus dungeon fights. I wouldn't worry about that. Instead, I would focus, I, I focus on those three and I recommend those three. Relaxing playlists, a suspenseful playlist and combat playlist. So what are some great albums that work well with this. I am a huge fan of video game soundtracks. I listen to video game soundtracks not only when we're running our games, but I listen to them when I'm working on other stuff for Sly Flourish, when I'm doing writing, when I'm working on anything. I like to have music in the background, but I can't deal with music that has lyrics in it, especially if I'm writing. I can't write or speak while there's music with lyrics. So I, as much as I love my classic rock, I don't listen to it when I'm writing. I listen to video game soundtracks because they last a long time, different pacing, they're really they sound really nice and I like listening to them but they don't have usually have vocals and if they don't have vocals that's not going to interrupt my own vocals that are going on my head or on the page or if I'm speaking it out to players I the Witcher 3 soundtrack is amazing I've been listening to it for years I've been listening to it as long as it's been out um, the main soundtrack the, the original score plus the Blood and Wine expansion sound really really good they have a lot of different tracks on there and it works very well for relaxing music it works well for suspenseful music in particular but it has a few bit of tracks of combat that you can throw in there as well. So I really like the Witcher 3 soundtrack a lot. It fits very well with a lot of our different kind of D&D fantasy settings. I like that a lot. Brand new one is the Baldur's Gate 3 soundtrack. The Baldur's Gate 3 soundtrack is done by the same composer that has done work for Larian before. I think it's Larian, right? Is Larian the guys that did Baldur's Gate? So Larian did Baldur's Gate 3. They also did Divinity Original Sin 2, which also has an excellent soundtrack. Same composer who did both of those. And really, obviously, like, kind of fits D&D very well. And it has a good mix of relaxing music, suspenseful music, and some combat music. All, both Witcher 3 and Baldur's Gate have good tracks that you can get for all of these. Now, one of the hard parts, sort of doing your homework up front, is you're going to want to sit down with your music player. You're going to want to listen to the music. When you find a track that fits it, you're going to add it to that playlist. And it could take you a good hour to go through all the different... You don't have to listen to a whole track you generally get an idea of like which tracks are good and you can play those tracks so unfortunately it's not like you can just play one whole album for a game because the pacing is going to be off so you kind of got to figure out which one of the three playlists those tracks are going to go to skyrim everybody's been listening to the skyrim soundtrack forever it is an excellent soundtrack it's got a mix of relaxing and suspenseful it's got some combat in there too really good low-key soundtrack that you can add people have been listening to it for i don't know as long as the game has been out elder scrolls 4 even older than that also relaxing and suspenseful very good fantasy music that you can add to your to your backgrounds i'm a big fan of the assassin's creed soundtracks i've been listening to all the assassin's creed soundtracks for a long time some of them work better than others because some of them are pretty circumstantial to the game they don't really fit well into any of the three categories but every so often you find some good combat music some good relaxing music some good suspense music that you can draw into the games assassin's creed 2 odyssey origins brotherhood and valhalla all have excellent assassin's creed valhalla seems to have like 30 different soundtracks for every one of the expansions they put out those are really good too and you can grab those and drop those in sometimes they have a lot of vocal stuff though so you got to pry out the vocal stuff divinity original sin 2 excellent soundtrack has all of it relaxing and suspenseful plus a little bit of combat really really good 
Dark Souls 2, done by Jesper Kidd, uh, also did a bunch of Assassin's Creed soundtracks. Really good for suspenseful and combat more so. There's not really a lot of relaxing stuff going on in the Darksiders 2 soundtrack, but it works really well. Far Cry Primal was a really interesting soundtrack. It's it's meant to be during like these you know, primeval days, and it works really, really well for combat music. It's got lots of tracks that fit very well for combat music. I like it very much for combat music. It was a good one. That one filled out my combat music stuff a lot and has some good suspenseful one. A soundtrack that I had not heard until recently is the Warhammer 40k Darktide soundtrack. I love it. The first track is amazing and it's got a lot of good suspenseful music in it and some good combat music. I actually just stuck this album on repeat during my Ravenloft game and it worked great. It sounded cool. I could hear it in the background. I don't know if the players picked it up, but it was a nice backdrop. Uh, and then Horizon Zero Dawn of Forbidden West are two amazing soundtracks. Uh, sometimes they're a little bit forward, so they, they kind of over overtake what's going on. They don't kind of fade in the background like Skyrim does. But many of their tracks work well for combat. Many of them work well for relaxing. Many of them work well for suspense. You got to listen to them. Again, both Horizon Zero Dawn and Forbidden West, plus their expansion soundtracks, are hundreds of tracks to go through. So you can kind of add those in. And, and off you go. Now, when I'm actually running music at the game, I keep the volume level low. There's two ways to do it. One when you're running online and one when you're running in person. In person, I don't, I used to have like a big stereo in the room and I actually got rid of it because it was like, it was too much. It was sitting right on top of one of the players. So I have a little Bluetooth speaker that sits off to the side and I can connect to it from my phone and it sits there. And a lot of times the players would be like, looking around, like, where is it? I'm like, oh, it's behind the cabinet over there. Like, oh, okay. And you just want it there so that it's kind of sitting in the background, almost like dental dentist music, right? You don't want it to be, you don't want it to call attention to itself. You don't want people to notice it's there or they might just notice. You really just want something that's kind of in the background that's setting the pace. So you want the volume level to be pretty low. You know, high enough that people can hear it, but not so high that it's dominating. And you don't want it to be so loud, so that they can't hear you over it, or they're paying more attention to it than they are to you. You don't want that. For online play, you can use Kenku FM. Kenku FM. Uh, Kenku FM is a uh, tool that is made by the same people who do Albert Rodeo. It's an application that sits on your machine. You can have it uh, added to your Discord server as a Discord bot. And it will stream music from your local machine or from any web browser-based machine. So what I do is I have all my playlists in Apple Music. I log on to Apple Music inside Kenku's browser, and then I can play a playlist from there, and it streams out to everybody else. And the key there is you want to make sure to tell your players how they can control the volume of the music. So you can put it there. You don't want it to be too loud. And then let them know, hey, they can turn it off if they don't want it, or they can turn it up just a little bit. And you tell them, like, I'm going to keep the streams going, but if you don't want to have it, you don't have to have it. That way, the players can control the music that they're that they're listening to. Because some people don't want it. Some people, they find it too distracting. And and if you're a DM and you don't like it and it's fine to do distracting, don't do it. You don't have to do it. But if you are the kind of person who likes that sort of subtle undertone, that's a way to go. Now, the cool bit is once you have your relaxing, suspenseful, and combat playlists, you have them forever, right? You have them, they work for any game. They'll work for, you know, unless the genre of your game shifts significantly. If you're playing fantasy RPGs and you set up these fantasy playlists, they're all set. I actually had separate ones for my Spelljammer campaign that actually did have like rock music and stuff like that because I was trying to capture this sort of 1980s heavy metal vibe when I was running my when I was running my my plane, my Spelljammer game. But, you know, that's kind of overkill and you can always fall back. You could have some other tracks that you play and then you could go back to your main playlist. So that works really well. So that's how I use music in my game. I think it's really kind of fun to do. It's one of those things. Is it, is it required in order to have a great game? No. But is it one of those things that you can spend some time on that adds a little bit of energy to the game? Pretty easy to do. Doesn't cost a lot and can, can work really well. Another thing you can do is there's lots and lots of playlists that follow these. If you go to YouTube, if you go to Spotify, people have already built playlists for all these different environments. You can just grab one of those playlists and go. I imagine that's a lot easier for people who do it that way if you don't want to be so nitpicky about what music you pick. You can even pick a particular album and say like, Witcher 3 relaxing music. I used to listen to this all the time. And they have like hour long or two hour long or three hour long sets of music from The Witcher that just go on repeat. And you can drop those in. Same thing like Darkest Dungeon combat music and things like that darkest dungeon by the way is another soundtrack that works really well so that's how i use music in my game i hope i hope you found that i hope you found that useful let's do one or two patreon questions jason c says regarding pacing i agree with monty cook that it's the most important skill for a gm to learn i've read hamlet's hit points and most of yours in teos's writing i've been doing this a long time so i think my session pacing is good but i'm wondering about overall campaign pacing in my current 5e campaign in tolis the pcs are 13th level so they're dealing with pretty high level threats i'm concerned that they're jumping from one high stakes mission to another and maybe there should be some low stakes sessions now and then to ramp down the anxiety my players haven't complained but if it's going to be an issue i'd like to head it off before it becomes serious yeah so combat pacing 
even when they're high level. So there's a couple things when you're talking about your campaign and you're like, well, you want your campaign threats to be appropriate for the level of the characters you want people to be if they're 13th level they should be handling like large regional or even worldwide threats is about what you would expect for a 13th level campaign and that idea of like if you're jumping from one worldwide threat to another well first of all you probably shouldn't be jumping from them those big threats are going to take some time to deal with it right you're going to have to you're going to have to deal with it but it's okay to drop some smaller things in there too because it's fun. I had a scene in Baldur's Gate 3 that I just had, a little bit, tiny bit of spoiler, where I went to a place and I'm trying to save a guy's life and he's like, look, I, got, I can't deal with your me, me being at risk. I've got rats in my basement. And you're like, dude, didn't you hear me? You're going to be murdered. He's like, I don't care. I got rats in my basement. I'm like, fine, I'll take care of the rats. And you go down and you're like eighth level and you're fireballing rats. It was fun, right? I was like, oh, that's funny, right? And then the idea of like, you just go down there and fireball rats, right? I literally had like my cleric fired up spirit guardians and just walked around destroying rats. It was hysterical. You can do stuff like that. A really good example. One of the best adventures is the best adventure I ever played. The best game I ever played in was James Inter and Invasion of the Planet of Tarasks, his 20th level adventure that he has up on the DMs Guild. It's a fantastic adventure. It's really, really good. Really, really funny. And in it, you are fighting Tarasks that are storming through Waterdeep. The reason why it's not an AL or official adventure is because it destroys half of Waterdeep because of Tarasks pouring out. But you're like, hey, so these Tarasks are pouring out and you're fighting Tarasks. But every so often you're like, oh, I'm fighting a Tarask. And you look and there's, a, there's like a woman and she's like, my baby, my baby's up in, that, up in that apartment that's getting destroyed. Please save my baby. And then the characters have to like go run upstairs while the Tarasks are destroying everything and go rescue her baby. And her baby is a kitten or like a cat. And the cat's like scratching you in the eyes while you're trying to get the cat out, right? And it's just funny. It's this funny little scene that they have in the middle of this thing where you're fighting Tarask at level 20, but you also have to go save a kitten from this the house that's going to collapse or you know at one point there's a bunch of people robbing this is my favorite scene was when there's a bunch of people robbing a store and it's like because they're using the fact that the Tarasks are destroying to go rob this guy's shop and you can like stop in the middle and go over and i remember my fighter this is one of my favorite scenes was i had my my big fighter who was named like darkon the decapitator was his name or something like that and uh, slorth sorth sorthon Sorthan the Decapitator or something like that. Sorthan the Decapitator. And he realized when he started fighting Tarasks that his plate armor was not doing him any good at all. So he took it all off. So he's just in his tidy whities and his plus three Vorpal Greatsword and a hat. And he's fighting Tarask because he's like, now I'm, I can be more limber and more mobile when I don't have to wear this heavy armor. I'm just in my tidy whities He's like, I'm, and they're hitting me either way. <laughs> like they, they, they only missed him on a two. So it didn't matter that his armor class, like having an armor class of 10 instead of an armor class of 18 did not matter when their attack bonus is plus 20. So he's running around in his tidy whities and he killed a Tarask and he sees these people robbing the stores and he's like, you there. And he like, I'm like yelled at and they all turn and I'm like, watch it. Right. And they're all like, okay, you know, it's like, I'm watching you. You stop that tomfoolery. And he's standing there on a dead Tarask with his huge purple greatsword and his tidy whities pointing at them and yelling. It was hysterical. So the point is you can throw these low stakes things in the middle of your campaign. So you can throw these low stakes things into your campaign. You can even have whole arcs of your campaign that are just subtle again. You can take a lot of the low stakes campaign arcs and drop them into your campaign like typical dungeon delves. That can work really well. So there's lots of different ways that you can bring the pacing of your game and, and have it down. You know, the beach, they call the beach episodes, right? Like, oh, it's the episode where everybody goes to the beach. They talk about this in RP role-playing games. Or what is it like when your 13th level characters uh, go to a beach, but then they find the tiki statue in the old thing that has cursed everybody and they got to go in. And by the way, it turns out there's people robbing it. You can have these low stake things. Now, one of the things is you generally don't want to have one where like stabbing a dude is the way to solve the problem that if you have your vincent price guy who is trying to steal the tiki statue because it's worth a ton of money if the characters just murder him it's not much fun but if they can't murder him because like oh murder's wrong or you know we're not supposed to kill anybody here or anything like that and they actually have to deal with it in the old ways you know that can be like a fun pacing thing by the way that's a brady bunch reference if you didn't get the Brady Bunch reference so don't be afraid of lowering those stakes and your players are probably have a good time with it and let them just if they decide you know what we're just going to fire up spirit guardians and murder everybody okay right like they, they have that they have that prerogative you know they can do that Julia R says I'm running two campaigns at the same setting but not having them affect uh, each other like you did whenever I come up with a good idea for one campaign I figure out how to make it work in the other how do you handle running those games do they do they have the same plot and meet the same NPCs yeah so one thing is I think it is hard to manage two games 
where the cat where one the effects of one group are affecting the other i did a tiny little bit of that in my in my scarlet citadel game and my empire of the ghouls game but it was very very little overlap and so it wasn't really hard to manage it was like one npc that they met had a vault that both groups were using and the npc was stealing stuff from both groups and feeding it to the other and both groups knew about it because they one player was playing between the two and knew what was going on other than that i haven't really had a lot go on and because it's just kind of too hard to manage and like we have enough trouble like let's not build a big thread you know chart where we have to keep track of every little thing that moves because we had two groups that are running some people do it i don't because it sounds like a headache as far as meeting the same npcs well you let the circumstances determine where they go in each game and then you let each game mutate in whatever direction it's going to go based on the actions that the characters take sometimes they run into the same npcs sometimes they don't sometimes they go to the same dungeon sometimes they don't and you just kind of see where they go usually there's some overlap which means you get to save a little bit of time on prep because you already have some stuff sometimes you get a nice thing where one group played through an area and another group is about to and you kind of get to test the same thing twice and things that went wrong the first time you can fix or things that worked really well you can do again so there's an advantage to doing that, but I don't, I, I, I don't hang on too tightly. I let the games go whatever direction they're going to go. Sometimes I'm able to repurpose stuff when I want to repurpose stuff. Other times I get, other times they go into completely different directions and I just figure out. So that's, that's kind of how I handle that. Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things role-playing games. I hope you enjoyed this show. If you want to see all of the material I do, you want to keep track of what I'm up to, please consider subscribing to the absolutely free Sly Flourish newsletter. Every week, you will get an, an RPG-related email sent directly to your inbox, and when you sign up, you get a free Adventure Generator PDF. You can also support me directly on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of cool things. You saw the GM screens, the Forge of Foes tool, but a whole bunch of other things, the Patreon Q&A, lots of different things that patrons have Sly Flourish get access to. It's a really good deal. And you can pick up any of my books at the Sly Flourish bookstore, including the Lazy DM's Companion, Lazy DM's Workbook, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, all of the fantastic books, lots of different things you can get in the bookstore. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play a role-playing game.